When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. This is the show you've been waiting for. That is Mr. Briscoe right there, the Oklahoma legend, WWE Hall of Famer. I would be Bradshaw, and this man is the one that is responsible for one of, if not the hottest angle in wrestling history. He's responsible for the Attitude Era. He's responsible for the NWO. Took a company that was losing $10 million a year and took it. John, John, wait a minute. I mean, I, you know, I know I, you try to introduce our friend, but you know, you know what this guy tried to do to us? He tried, you and I, two little independent guys out here on, in, in the world of podcasting, trying to make a podcast where, where it is relevant, where it does mean something, where it is informational. And, and Eric Bischoff comes on global-wide internet, that, that platform that he has globally with that billionaire Connie, and starts telling us how relevant his, his thing is how up-to-date his is and how obsolete we are. And you're sitting well, there putting well, this guy well, on. Well, well, well. Hey, we invited you on there. Here, you were kind enough to come on. So I will shut up and let you have a little say there. But you're I got right. John, I can't believe you're person. saying all those good things about it. You know, I got to tell you guys, I, 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 I thought we were friends, which is why I agreed to come on here. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, the things that are being said in social media since I agreed to come on. And you guys are, you guys are, you're not afraid to throw a couple punches. So as long as we're throwing punches here, Gerald, let me throw a couple of your way. I was, I was trying to be kind and trying to acknowledge you guys, but you're ripping us like saying that we were trying to put you out of business for what having Sean Waltman on the show on the 25th anniversary of the NWO. What the hell? What that, what's that got to do with me trying to take anything away from you? It only feels like I'm trying to take something away from you if you think by default everything fucking belongs to you. And it doesn't. Sean Waltman is an independent guy. He wanted to be on the show. Why does that make Eric, me the bad Eric, guy? Eric, I Eric, always Eric, have to I'm, be I'm the sure bad guy. Eric, correct me if I'm wrong. Sean Waltman told me that you offered him $25,000 to come on your podcast. <laughs> well, I heard too. With me, not your money, mind you, but just like everybody else's money you've used at Billionaire Connie's money. Hey, number one, it's not true. So you call two, Sean even if it was, Even if it was true, it doesn't you're make me a bad John guy. Waltman it makes me a generous guy. There's a difference. John. Yeah. Jerry, this uh, is pretty step much in here, happened. John. Be the, be the voice of reason here. Life felt for a change. Mr. Briscoe, listen, I I gotta agree with my Oklahoma friend here. I mean, Mr. Bischoff tried to put us out of our homes about 20 years ago, and he's doing it again now. We're just a couple of independent guys trying to make the world a better place by telling people stories where they laugh, where they joke, where they have so much fun. We get Sean Waltman on, and before our show even airs, Mr. Bischoff has stolen. X-Pac from us trying to put us out of business. Then he comes on our show and uses horrible adult language at us. It's atrocious, Jerry. It's atrocious. 
<laughs> I'm guilty. All right. I'm just guilty. I'm a bad, horrible person that's trying to steal the food out of your mouths and get you kicked out of your home for no other other reason than I just have somebody else's money to spend. I wish you're I was not the, you're not the first one to say that about yourself, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Now, now Mr. Bish Mr. Bishop, you please call me that? Eric, damn it. Please call me Eric. Okay, Eric. You did say that the only reason that Mr. Briscoe stretched you in Oklahoma in his home state on his birthday was because you felt sorry for a 60-year-old man. I didn't say that. You're putting words in my mouth. What I said was there were people there. It was in public. We were in a bar. Granted, we had run most of the people out of the bar, but there was still a bartender there and I think a waitress by about 2 o'clock in the morning when all these shady shenanigans took place. But still, Bruce was there and John Cena was there. I, it was Gerald's birthday. I, you know, I, I didn't feel sorry for him, but I wanted to be kind. And what I said was, don't ever confuse kindness for weakness. But I, I was kind. I, not only did Mr. Briscoe take me down and <clears throat> somewhat embarrass me, just a little bit. Eric, I got to tell you the truth on that. After all these years, John, I'm going to tell the truth. Eric, you didn't even know you, you'd had so many adult beverages that you were feeling pretty good. And, you know, I was feeling pretty good too. But when we locked up, John Cena looked at me and weak, like push him towards me. So I, I gave you a little shove. John stuck his foot out there and you tripped and fell on it, fell right on your damn back and didn't even know it. And then so you guys are you guys are busting my chops for being an evil person who's trying to take money away from you. And here's Gerald admitting to the world that he had to cheat in order to beat me on his. I did cheat. John Cena's the cheat. <laughs> John Cena's a cheat out there. So Eric, you're you're saying that I've been stating that I've never once come out and said I did. It's usually Layfield or that damn guy that your cohort that you worked there with, not billionaire Tony, but that other billionaire to be uh, big old Bruce Pritchard. He's the <laughs> one that ends and those two guys are really the ones that instigated that whole deal. You and I were sitting there having a good time, very cordial towards each other and and enjoying ourselves in Oklahoma having a nice cold beer. And all of a sudden Layfield and Cena they start piping off where they kind of paint us into the corner where we both look like, you know, we don't have anything between our legs if we don't do something. So <laughs> it's not your fault or my fault. It, it's actually that guy in the corner up there. Uh-huh. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I was now there. the truth is coming out. And watch, watch that taxi back up, man. That's I'm gonna, I got words for Cena next time I see John Cena. That's now that the I know worst the recollection truth. of a story I've ever heard, Jerry. That that was that that did not happen. I do remember Eric Bischoff saying he can't be that good. <laughs> and, that's, and that's when the whole that's when furniture started spreading back. <laughs> and you get that cockeyed look and you're sideways because you're all Oklahoma and you're drinking too much and you want to stretch somebody. And Eric actually says, I'll give it a go. <laughs> which I give him a lot of credit for. You guys are both in suits in the middle of a bar. <laughs> and Eric didn't give it a go. It just didn't work. wasn't much but of a go. But not for too long. It, it wasn't much of a go. Well for Eric. You, you know what the you know what the best part of the story was? And I haven't talked about this to many people, but of course I was out with you guys all what are we out till 
two, three, whatever it was in the morning. I had to get up early and catch a flight, fly all the way back to Phoenix where I lived at the time. So I looked like I got run over by a train. I had mat burns on my face. My elbows were all burned up. I looked like shit anyway, because I was so hung over. My face was swollen the size of a, of, of a basketball. Eyes were just these little slits. And I had a broken thumb. So I can, I finally get home the next morning. From my eyes, <laughs> I get home the next day and I walked in the door looking like death warmed over and like I got my ass kicked, which I did. And my wife said, well, how was TV? And I said, TV was all right. But man, hanging out afterwards was a blast. And I went right to bed and slept for six hours. <laughs> yeah. Eric, the, the first time you walked into the WWE, I believe it was in Newark, uh, New Jersey, at, at, at the old little metal lands at the time. I don't know what it's called now, but uh, uh, how how was how was your feeling there? And, and it kind of leads us up to 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 the to the uh, you coming in and you and Vince hooking up and and how that uh, how that situation all worked out and how you felt and the reception that you got uh, when you came into the to the WWE. Yeah. You know, it, it just, you know, it started with a phone call. Vince gave me a shout and, you know, a lot of people don't know this uh, because there's been other people, you know, who have taken credit for me even getting the opportunity at WWE, but you know, Vin, WWE had contacted me a year previously. JR called me and offered me a spot to come in and work on Monday night raw. And it was in July and I happened to have, people at my house over the 4th of July, it's kind of a big deal. And people were flying in from around the country and someone were driving in. It was already happening right over the 4th of July. And JR called me a couple of days before and said, uh, Hey, you know, would like to know if you'd like to come in and do a Monday night raw. And I tried to get some information out of Jim, but Jim wasn't very forthcoming. And I understand that, you don't often want to, you know, lay out an entire storyline to somebody if you're not sure they're even on your team. But Jim also had kind of a bad taste in his mouth about me. You know, he wasn't happy to make that call. I could tell, you know, when somebody's anxious to talk to you and you know, when someone's just doing it because they have to, and Jim was doing it because he had to. And since he couldn't really tell me what I was going to be doing, there was really no contract discussion, not even a hint of one. And I just said, nah, I think I'm going to pass. And then about a year later, Vince called himself and I knew within 45 seconds of saying hello that I was going to go to work for him. He was super gracious. You know, he, he, I won't repeat what he said to me, but he was very, very gracious, more gracious than he needed to be. And, you know, he laid it all out to me and, and I said, Oh, absolutely, man, let's, let's do it. I mean, our, our conversation was probably no more than four minutes tops five. And I made up my mind that I was, I was going to come to WWE because to me, it was an opportunity to kind of write the last chapter of my book, you know, before coming to WWE, you know, wrestling was kind of a sore spot with me. You know, things didn't work out the way I wanted to, wanted them to at WCW, obviously. And I thought once I hung up with Vince, this is an opportunity for me to, you know, I was going there as talent and I was fairly confident in my abilities as talent. And I knew that there was a lot of people there in WWE that I had never had a chance to work with. So it was like, wow, what a fantastic opportunity. And I knew that however long 
my term, you know, my, my term would be at WWE. It was in my ability to make sure it ended up very, very positive because I, you know, I was confident in my ability as a performer. So I, I just looked at it as a great way to close out the last chapter of my wrestling book. Little did I know there'd be other chapters, but at the time I kind of looked at it as like, all right, this is my last shot. Go have some fun, damn it. And that's why I approached everything I did. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't, I didn't feel awkward at all. I know it sounds strange given the circumstances, right? You would think, <clears throat> I would think that I should have felt awkward or tentative about it, but I just, I didn't. You know, I just I, I know I know Eric and, and the back when when you come in and then you know and and this business as as we all three know, it's almost impossible to keep secrets. It's almost possible that to make a big major move like like Vince and you made without without the world knowing almost instantly, and, but yet you guys were able to to be professional about it. And nobody knew, not even the guys in backstage until later on in the evening that Eric Bischoff was coming. And all of a sudden, the place went from a normal TV setting, and John could back this up, to kind of a tense-type deal. Well, what kind of reaction is this guy going to get? I mean, this is the guy that tried to take food off of our table, just like you did with George, with Briscoe, and Just Bradshaw. like you did with our podcast with the Billionaire County. Thank you, John. Thank you. You finally said something positive there. but. Uh, you know, it was kind of tense, and then you know there there were certain guys. You know, I and I, you know, I had made some comments about you on a on a DVD that John. Yeah, you said you about. wanted to beat my ass if you saw me in an airport. Is exactly what you said. You did say that, Jerry. You said that on a DVD. <laughs> but luckily, we were at the uh, arena, not the airport. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was standing I was standing talking to Undertaker. When Eric walked in and I didn't see him, Undertaker goes, the hell? And I turned around and there's Eric just walking by. I go, I didn't really expect to see that today. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, I, I tell you, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was cool. He was there. I, you know, I had no issue at, at all whatsoever with it. But it you was know, a shock. It was definitely, well, Eric, was that the first time? I know you in either 90 or 91, that's when you had the, to sell a broom for Vince McMahon, uh, which we can talk about in a second. But uh, that was that the first time you'd really talked to him? It was the first time I'd really met Vince. You know, the first time I talked to, you know, when he called me on the phone a month or two before I actually showed up was the first real direct conversation with him, with Vince I ever had. But, but back in 90 or 91, whatever it was, when I interviewed or tried to sell a broom, I, I was talking to Vince over an intercom. You know, oh, in the studio, I, I never even saw him face to face. So my first face to face meeting with Vince literally was that night uh, at Continental Arena. And, and for those that are that are listening and don't know the story, you had a tryout with WWE in 1991. And the, the tryout was sell that broom for me. And you literally had they got a tape of it with WWE. They, literally, you were sitting there off the cuff, Adley, I'm trying to sell a broom to, to Vince. Yeah, that was pretty different but but i understood it you know he wanted to see how fast i was on my feet if i could improv if i could ad lib if i was easily shook you know i get that i i i, I kind of like that idea that's a great way to to see what somebody's all about and if they can handle pressure it's a good indication so um i failed that test <laughs> hey, well, thank goodness you did because we might not have guaranteed contracts or the attitude era if you if you'd have passed that test Everything happens for a reason. 
And yeah, it, everything happened for a reason, but somebody's got to be there to bring it to the forefront. And and you were there. I remember when I I was just getting in the office. Uh, also, when when you were making your 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 WCW office uh, uh, debut, and you know we we'd lost Kevin and we'd lost uh, Razor and several other guys. We we had that twenty one day tour in Germany. You talk about a long ass tour with. You got three guys that are leaving that really don't give a shit what goes on. And, uh, and even though they were professional as they could be, it was still a Don. I think you were on that tour. It was very difficult time, you know, trying to cater to, to all, all their wants and trying to keep them happy. As, as you guys know, Vince's number one slogan is get the match in the ring. In other words, do whatever you need to do that night to get the match in the ring. And it seemed like, I was bending over backwards more than I'd ever done in my career, trying to just trying to keep these guys happy. But uh, I had a meeting with them and I was friends with them, but I had a meeting with them. And I said, what really made you guys decide to go? He said, because we got guaranteed money. We know what, what money we're going to make next week here. We don't know what kind of money we're going to make. We don't even know what kind of money we're going to make on this tour. And traditionally at that time, before we overhauled the international, John can uh, testify that we were losing money and guys were making crap when they go international and we go on some rough ass tours, but we had to reorganize the, the whole deal. And part of that was because of, of the business practices that you brought into this business, which were, which were good and an asset became an asset to this business. Hey, and Jerry, not the, you get to Scott and Kevin's credit. You know, they didn't have to come on that tour. And they came and they did business every single night. They put guys. They were total over. professionals, exactly. You know, we talk about how bad Scott and Kevin were. That's bullshit, as far as I was concerned, because they were always great in the dressing room. There was not that dissension, like you know, so many people said we had. I know there may have been some issues out there, but on that tour, those guys didn't have to come, and they did us a massive favor every night. They went to the ring, put guys over. They know they're going to WCW. But that was really a cool thing that they did to, yeah. to finish out. And that was a miserable last tour, if you'll remember, too, John. We it was brutal. Downtown. A different town every single night. And they, they were ready to go every night. And I know I know their, their party habits. I think, we, who was it, Cypress Hill we ran into in some damn, uh, some damn uh, German uh, city there. And they partied all night with Cypress Hill. And uh, <laughs> the next morning, you know, unlike unlike Layfield, uh, they were there on time for the bus. Layfield <laughs> cleaning up against the shower area. I have to Eric, rescue Layfield. Eric. The bus is running late one time. They leave Layfield in the shower. He's leaning up against the shower. Bus is late, so I go to his room, walk in the bathroom. Layfield, I said, what are you doing, John? We're late. He said, I'm taking a shower. I said, John, turn the water on first. You know? <laughs> True story. True story. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, Scott, Scott, and Kevin—I mean, they were total professionals. There, there wasn't there wasn't one one little bit about the in-ring effort that they put forth there. But it was just hard because every little thing turned into a major thing. You know, we we had Sonny on a tour, and, and she was she was being Sonny, and so it was. We had to amend our some of our policies to to keep her out of trouble, and so. But those two guys, yeah, they did a wonderful job. But what I'm saying is the things that you brought to the business, and when I had that meeting with them and they told me that, the first thing I went back uh, to, to, uh, to the States and I had my meeting with Vince about the tour, he said, what's going on? What's causing all this? So I said, Vince, 
we got to we got to give the guy guaranteed money. I can't do that. Well, you got to. We won't have anybody here. So, so uh, I'm sure every everybody should thank you for that. What what the business evolved evolved into. But uh, yeah, you're right. That that guaranteed money was was a game changer. Well, and it worked out good for WWE in the long run. Like I said earlier, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, the business is probably more stable as a result. And it's it's a good thing, right? Yeah, it is a good thing. Eric, I want to ask you, I was looking at some small interviews that, that you and I did. Uh, 19, uh, let's see, was it 88? You helped promote the Super Clash. It was the only pay-per-view that AWA did. They did AWA, they did uh, the Von Erics, and I believe uh, uh, Memphis, uh, Jerry Lawler, as a Super Clash trying to fight off uh, Vince McMahon. Uh, you guys were there in Chicago. Did you know then, I mean, that was that kind of a last gasp effort to stop the momentum of the WWE? Did you know that that would, might be the last stand you guys were making as far as the territories? You know, John and Gerald, I was so far removed from reality. I had no, I'd only been, but by the time we did that super clash, I'd only been in AWA for less than a year. So I was so, I was so green, so excited just to have a job and work for Vernon Gagne. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't know anything about what was, I didn't understand where Vern was financially. Um, because Vern didn't share that with me. I was the new kid that watered the plants and took out the garbage after work, you know? So I had no idea where Vern really was in 1988. I subsequently, I figured it out, but then no, I didn't know. I didn't look at it as Vern's last stand. I didn't really understand, you know, the nature of Vern's business or what WWE or WWF at the time was doing. So I was just, man, I was my job on that tour, by the way, here's my job. I literally, and I'm no handyman. My wife won't let me near anything other than a hammer. Like if she sees me with a screwdriver, a wrench, or a power tool, she'll call 911 or just get a gun. It, but my job was to build the sets that we were going to use for the interviews. These are four by eight sheets of plywood and did some molding on it and painted them real pretty and all that. And then I had to rent a van. And I loaded that set in a van and I drove that set from city to city, set it up. That was my job. And I was excited as hell to do it. Uh, but I was really unaware, completely naive as to what was really going on, <clears throat> not only with Vern, but within the business in general. Yeah. I'm so interested. Eric, in that Eric, is, is it true that uh, the way you got the announcing jobs, one of the announcers didn't show up that day and you were, you happened to be there. Uh, pitching a product or something, and they, and you, you, I mean, you, I, I'm fortunate enough to be on on this podcast. Not only with Layfield, but you, two of the guys that have the most perfect hair in this business. <laughs> I'm sure that hair is why you got hard at Vern in the beginning. So you were just standing around looking like Eric Bischoff can look with that full head of hair and that nice suit on, suit and tie on, and uh, hey, that guy over there, look at him, man. Let's give him it, it, it wasn't quite like that, but it was pretty close. <laughs> I had already, I got hired by Vern in 1987 to handle his uh, syndication and sponsorship sales. So that I was in, I was in the office, you know, way back in the office and in Vern's um, at Vern's studio at the time, it was really, it was an old church and that was converted into an office. So on one side of the building, 
was what the sanctuary used to be. Well, that was the production studio. And then you go through a couple set of double doors and then you're in the office side. So I had an office way in the back and because I was in sales and all that, I, I usually wore a sport coat or, or a suit coat. And if I wasn't going to meet anybody, I'd leave it hanging on the back of the door in case I needed to take a meeting quick outside of the office. And one day uh, after I'd been there for about, I don't know, eight months or so, I guess, sometime in there, there was another announcer after Gene Okerlund left, a guy by the name of Larry Nelson took Gene Okerlund's spot, right? <clears throat> Larry had one of those just deep barrel chested rustling radio voices. And Vern loved that. <clears throat> Vern was a big fan of radio voices. But Roger, excuse me, um, Larry also had a, he had a pretty serious drinking problem. And back in the day, you know, Vern would fly the talent in from around the country like once a month or twice a month to do market edit promos. You know, you, you guys remember what those used to be. But um, that was back in the day when you had syndication. You do interviews for every local market, then insert them in that local show. So you spend 12, 14, 16 hours sometimes over a course of a day or two um, doing these market-specific promos. Well, these promos were scheduled for a Tuesday morning. <clears throat> I show up at the office. Everybody shows up. All the talent that flew in the night before, they're all showing up. There's 20, 30 guys standing around. Everybody's waiting on Larry Nelson. Larry's late. Larry's even later. Where the fuck is Larry? By the way, can we swear on this show? <laughs> we can now. <laughs> a little late now. As long but, as it's not at us. Yeah, but... Time's going on. Everybody realizes, you know, Larry, finally we find out Larry Nelson got pulled over the night before, got a DUI, and he was in jail. <laughs> so now Vern, you know, he's he's seeing money burning, you know, with all the talent sticking around, nobody to, you know, handle the stick, right? So it's like, oh, Jesus, oh, what are we going to oh, Is anybody around here who's got a tie? That was it. And Vern or Greg said, I, I think Eric, oh, Eric, you know, over the Eric. Oh, well, geez, oh, yeah, that guy. He's got a tie. Go get him in here. <laughs> so Greg Dunning came and got me and said, Follow me. Vern wants to see you. And I'm thinking, Oh, God, what did I do? I haven't been here long enough to piss anybody off yet. What the hell? So I get in there and he goes, Okay, here's what I want you to do put me in that spot. It, to, to, to work. I had never done it before in my life. I didn't know what a countdown was. I had no idea. I had no idea how to do what I, what I was being asked to do. And now there's 25 or 30 guys, 20 guys, whatever it was, standing around. Here's the new kid that doesn't even know what he's doing and doesn't even try to pretend he does. And Vern's going, okay, this is really simple. This is just Jesus, this is simple stuff. Here's what you're going to do. See that guy over there by the camera? He's going to go five, four. And when he points at you, you go. Now you've got a minute, all right? I want you to tell everybody where they can find their tickets, what time the event is, and who this guy's opponent is going to be. This guy, in this case, was Larry Zabisco. Tell them who's Larry Zabisco's you know, opponent's going to be. Then let Larry take it over, and when Larry's done, you wrap it up and tell them one more time where they can buy their tickets, where the event is, and what time it is. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Which sounds very simple. Yeah. Unless you have, unless you've done it a bunch of times, it's not that simple. 
No, and you know, and then it's just, it's, when he counts you down, you know, he's gonna go like that. That means thirty seconds, and then he's gonna do like this, and then when he goes five, four, three, you gotta be done. As soon as he points you, you gotta be done. Now that's the hard part, right? And I, I said, okay, I got it, Bern, I got it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Now Larry's standing. Larry's Zabisco's standing next to me. He's my very first interview. I get the countdown. I, I hit my cue right on time. And I looked at Larry, and I don't know what garbage fell out of my mouth. But it was horrible. <laughs> and Larry looked at me for just a second. Now, I got 20 or 30 guys there, whatever it was, standing around watching now, right? Because they know what's going to happen. Vern's there. He's all wound up. He's pissed off at Larry. He's burning money because everybody's standing around. He's got to keep him an extra day. I get my shit out. I thought I set it up right. Zabisco looks at me and busts out laughing. It's like this <laughs> long pause. He doubled over laughing. Everybody in the room except for Vern is doubled over laughing. Sergeant Slaughter was there. It was horrible. But I got through it. I eventually got through it somehow. It was painful. How did you end up then? Because the story was then they hired, they replaced you, but then you got hired back, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was horrible. I knew I was horrible. I couldn't wait for them to hire somebody else because I never wanted to go through that experience again. And I think they hired another guy to come in and he was actually worse than me, believe it or not. So they brought me back the next time. So I'll just, we'll find somebody, but until we do, just have Eric do it. And that, that we kind of rinsed and repeat that whole process for about two months. And I think they, you know how it is when, you know how it is when you walk into a room that really smells like somebody, you know, Passed a bunch of gas in the room. But after you've been in the room for a few minutes, you kind of get used to it. Doesn't smell anymore. <laughs> that's about that's that's what happened with my interview skills. They got so used to how bad I I, I was that it they became nose blind to it. Right. And if I finally they just gave up. So I'll just let Eric do it. You you know, people just don't understand, you know, everybody stands around, they BS and they talk, and it's easy to talk trash and everything like that. But you get a microphone in your hand. I, one thing I always preach to these amateur kids that I that I that I recruit, I tell them I'm not I'm not worried about your athletic ability because I know you're you're a great athlete or I wouldn't be recruiting you. But what I worry about is your speaking skill, your promotional skills, your promos that we call it in the business. It'll be the most important one minute you'll get that entire weekend is when they hand you a microphone and put that camera. Oh, I can do that, Mr. Briscoe. You know, we talk, we interview all the time, you know, the local college newspaper interviews me. It ain't the same. Then all of a sudden you see one of the big three-time All-Americans, you hand them a damn microphone, count them down. All right, you got you got 60 seconds to tell us why WWE should invest hundreds of thousands of dollars to make you a superstar. You get the microphone. Well, hello, my name is... Uh, Joe Blow and I'm from Minnesota and uh well you know or you know it's hard as hell to to to, to fill a minute when 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 that camera is on there. People just don't realize the, the pressure and, and and the time restraint that you gotta meet there. It's definitely a unique skill set. One one of many that to be successful, I think, in the wrestling business you have to have. In my case, I really was never anything but an announcer, <clears throat> especially in the beginning. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, the additional challenges of actually becoming good because I, you know, the key, for, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. 
once I got comfortable with who my character was or how to present myself, it got easier like anything else. You, the more you do it, the easier it becomes and you find little ways to improve and all that. <clears throat> but it was a real, it took me a couple of years to get to that point where I was somewhat not embarrassed by myself, actually. Hey, um, Eric, was there ever a time when I know you were, you were, you were on a freestyle team and you were, black belt karate judo champion was there ever a time where you you considered putting on the boot placing up the boots and getting in the ring or got you know, no, all those campers, all those campers going on at that time where you were you were getting in weren't they no because number one i was never that big you know when i think when Vern hired me i was a buck 70 you know at a time when a buck 70 didn't do much for hell yeah white grain my 10 pounds <laughs> <laughs> but but um also, I was in my mid-30s or early 30s. I was 33, I think, or 32 or 33 when Vern hired me as an announcer. So, I, I mean, I was pretty self-aware and realized that, you know, any chance I would have ever had to get into professional wrestling passed me by about 10 years earlier. So, no, I had no desire to do that or interest. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is one of the reasons that the older guys were so better at ad-lib stuff. You know, I think the difference is, our generation is really good at ad lib. This generation is really good at reading a script. Not that one is good or one is bad. It's just, we didn't read scripts and these guys don't ad lib. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of tough when you see a bunch of old wrestlers get a script, you know, they sit there and look at it like, like it's in Greek, like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't remember anything. Cause Michael Hayes says the only good script is the one you take to the drugstore. (laughs) (laughs) We used to do those market uh, matches. You know, like after the shows, you know how it was cause you'd bicycle the tapes and they say, okay, you got Kerry Von Erich and a lumberjack match. Bill Rogers calls him. Give me two minutes go and then it would just go to another you got killer tim brooks and watch a hack it's a cage match give me a minute and a half go and you would just do one interview after another you know filling up all these different tapes that are going different ways and after a while you got where it just kind of came off with without thinking you yep. know which, which was really an advantage to us to be able to do stuff like that and so when you talk about the the young guys today they don't have that advantage because all their stuff is pretty much in front of a lot of people and it's all pretty, pretty scripted, which is not necessarily good or bad. I disagree. I think it's bad, but whatever. <laughs> okay, it's bad. <laughs> no, I think it's only bad because the talent never learns how to become that character. They're reading words that have been written for them. And it's not necessarily their voice. And the writers, you know, I worked with them, you know, when I was in WWE. They, they're really great writers and they work their asses off and they try their best. But by the time that interview gets approved, if you know what I mean, it's gone through some changes and it's no longer the talent's voice and the talent is doing what they should do because that's what they're getting paid to do is do what the boss tells them to do. And they're trying their best to kind of, as I say, take ownership of that dialogue or that interview, but it's not their voice and they don't, they're not trained actors. You know, they didn't go to you know, acting school. They don't come out of films or television. Um, they don't know how to make that script their own, and they're not getting the opportunity to learn how to do it on their own by improv. So they're kind of stuck in the middle, unfortunately. Yeah. My, God, my God, John, I can't believe this. I'm actually going to agree with Eric on that, on that, on that <laughs> comment there. I, I think that's one of the, the missing ingredients of, that separates everybody the great promo guys were always separated uh, because they could cut a promo and you get, you get two guys equal skill out there. 
the one that cuts the promo is the one that's going to make the money, not the one on, not the one that's just nodding his head there. So, so these guys are, they're missing that emotion. I think that come from trying to create a promo and having the pressure on you that you get that emotion that you that you can cut a good promo. But uh, when it's all scripted, you, you're not yourself. You're, you're somebody else. You're somebody else's voice. As hard and as talented as those writers are for for these organizations now, they still can't put themselves inside your body and get your emotions. And once you tap into your emotions, I think that's when you, you cut a good promo, not when you're It gets a hell of a lot easier for sure. And then one thing about that, Jerry, is, you know, we're not Al Pacino. You know, Eric, when Eric, you say that we're not actors, we're not. And, you know, we do good at being in a character, but, you know, so many times the, the writers will want it perfect. So you do a backstage segment and I've watched these guys, you know, you have a lot of emotion in that first segment when you feel like it's kind of live, live, you know, but it's not, but it's maybe live to tape. And then they say, okay, do it again, but put this in there. Then you lose a little bit. You know, a guy like Pacino gets better take after take after take. Guys that aren't trained actors don't. They get worse. And then it starts looking rehearsed. I think that can be a problem when stuff gets overproduced on some of these. Yeah, guys. because because as talent, and I've I've done it. I've been on both sides of that, actually. <clears throat> I've been a, as a producer. I've produced talent that way. And as a talent, I've been produced that way. And what happens, even in my case, you know, after having 15 or 20 years of experience um, doing it, um, once you get overproduced and people are looking for specific words for whatever reason, even though it doesn't really change the tone or anything else, but they want that word in there. Now you're, now you're memorizing. You're not emoting. You're not really telling people how you feel. You're memorizing what they want you to say. And that's where the disconnect comes with the audience because they know the difference. Yeah. You can feel it. And, and Jerry, that's why we don't have writers on our show that, that we may not have anymore because Eric and Big and our Connie are, are putting us out of business. <laughs> yeah, we can't afford them like Eric. I saw Eric's script today, man. I have like 20 pages. Did you get that? Did you get that memo done? I saw it. It's unbelievable. And this is what Eric, Eric, Eric memorizes this uh, from, from start to start to ending there. But uh, these guys have got staff. They've got every, everything around them. It's unbelievable. Um, man, so I, we started getting emails today, man. I, I mean, Eric, how many assistants do you really have there? I, I don't have any assistance. Well, you got billionaire Connor. He's got all the assistance, but we've got, We've got a good staff of about, I don't even know what it is. We just added a couple more people the other day. So I'm guessing probably six or eight people on the team, you know, that are full-time, you know. No wonder you're kicking our ass. And speaking of kicking our ass, yeah. did you really think that you could kick Vince McMahon's ass, Eric? I didn't care whether I could or not, frankly. Um, <laughs> I I wasn't intimidated by him um, because I didn't know him. Now, had I known Vince then, the way I do now, I, maybe I'd approach things a little differently because he is kind of a crazy bastard. Um, but at the time, he to me, he was just a big, jacked up, muscled up bench, you know, gym guy. And not not to sound like the tough guy because that shit's way behind me. But I you know, I bounced in a bar in Chicago, I downtown. I I I've fought guys bigger and stronger than me a, a lot in my life. 
I've you also bounced in a bar in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the way. No, I got bounced in a bar. <laughs> bounced There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was the bouncy, not the bouncer. There's a difference. <laughs> but no, I wasn't. I wasn't afraid of Vince at all. I wasn't intimidated by him, and 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 mostly because my thinking was, look, if he shows up, whether he kicks my ass or it goes the other way, I don't really care because it's a win win. Huge. It's going to be huge. <laughs> And for those There's listening, it was the uh, controversy creates cash, and you created uh, more controversy by by issuing that challenge. I think than anybody in years and years of the wrestling business did. So it it, it, it served a point, and I think it was it was well taken because uh, honestly, uh, Bruce and I had to talk Vince out of going. Out of oh, I don't. Uh, he wasn't ever going to show. That was all work. He was working you too. He was never going to come. He's, he's he is afraid to show worker. up. Yeah. It's all talk. Just he's all afraid talk. he's going to get his ass kicked, Eric. He read all those press clippings. You know? So, so wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jerry. We're, we're talking about the 1998 Slamboree. I think, is, isn't that right, Eric? It was the pay-per-view that you, you yeah. invited Vince to come and, and fight you in the ring. And yeah. you had him uh, counted out. So you actually won the match. Well, I had no choice. He didn't show up. <laughs> so Jerry, you had a dressing room for him and everything there too. Right? I had a dressing room for him. I, you know, name I plate. Know yeah, I, no, nameplate on the door. I instructed Doug Dillinger, a head of security, and everybody else on the security team. If they show up, escort them to the room like any other celebrity. Provide them with every courtesy that we would anybody else that was a celebrity. Take care of them and. You know, the only other direction I gave was the big show because, you know, there were some people that were actually thought that Vince might show up and big show came up to me and he goes, oh, Hey boss. Uh, well, what happens if he shows up, I said, if he shows up, shows up, we'll figure it out. Goes, well, what happens if, you know, doesn't go your way. I said, you know, he was like, you want to give me the Iggy and have me come in? I said, Paul, no. You know, now, unless it looks like there's imminent death involved and I'm on the receiving end of it, you know, use your judgment. But other than that, no, just let it go. And So, and, so Jerry, the, what's the skinny here? Well, you talked to Vince. What was the, what's the skinny here on Vince's side? Oh, he was pissed off as hell. I mean, I, I was right there, right there when it happened. Now, you got his attention, Eric. I mean, uh, you know, Vince didn't watch the show, of course, but he had, you know, Howard Finkel there. We used to, we used to get these on on tuesday mornings we used to get these detailed packs of packets of paper i mean uh, it was just thick like this i mean uh, and it had segment by segment move by move howard finkel say would stay up all night long deciphering his notes and making notes and printing everybody out so the next day we knew exactly the time we knew exactly who went to the bathroom one day i mean everything that was on that show we knew thanks to Howard Fink, but that that when when they brought that script in and uh, and said Eric Bischoff challenged challenged you, like, of course it spread across production meeting like wildfire. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You guys going to go down there? And uh, and you know, Vince Vince was hot. I mean, he was hot about it. It, it was embarrassing to him. He felt it was embarrassing to him, and. Uh, but uh, you know, there was no way, like you said, he was go he was going to go down there because everybody, what what good you going to do? You go down there and you say you do kick his ass, you get lucky and you kick Eric's ass. 
but he is a black belt karate guy, uh, by the way, Vince. And uh, you, you got <laughs> I me bet you that scared him to death, too. A high school wrestling match. That was Vince's claim to fame, getting beat by a blind guy in a high school wrestling match, by the way. Ooh, I didn't know. I wish I would have known that when I was cutting those promos on Vince. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jerry he tells a great story about that. Well, I have him all one time, John, have him tell that story about getting beat by a high, uh, blind guy in high school. But, uh, but uh, there was no way in Plus, we were just we wasn't going to let him go, and uh, and uh, you know we had a show to do too. So, <laughs> but uh, you got his attention. You got everybody's attention, and uh, it just goes back to Eric being Eric and creating something that's talking to people are talking about your company, and 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 you were kicking our ass for eighty two weeks, eighty three weeks, whatever it was. Jerry, did what, did Vince ever say that he was going to go? No, no, no. I mean, he wanted to go, and he always hinted like he wanted to go and was going to go, but uh, there was nobody who was going to let him go. No, no, nobody going to let him get, get near that place. It was worse. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, Gerald. How could anybody have stopped him if Vince truly wanted to go? Who would, well, who you would could, that be? He couldn't have, but we could have put up a hell of a roadblock for him and you know, made it difficult for him to get there, and we would have, I mean. I mean, uh, you were, I mean, you, you being WCW, you guys were kicking our ass anyway. And, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, as you know, the, the, the hours that you got to put in when you work next to that guy is just insanely ungodly. You know what I mean? I don't know how that man puts in all those hours that he puts in, but he, he could, he could have gone if he really wanted to, but. I tell you, we stuck by him, and and, and we we wasn't going to let him anywhere near that. But you know, we, we right, like you say, if Vince said I'm going and you're not stopping me, we we wouldn't have been able to stop him. And didn't didn't wasn't Stephanie graduating from college that same weekend as well? I believe it was it was it was that was that, that that in that time frame. Ste- oh. I thought I thought it was Shane, but looking back, it's probably Stephanie. But. Uh, and that was in Boston, but that Wooster isn't too far from Boston. <laughs> that's I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just trying to be kind. He could make it. I was just trying to be kind and give give him an excuse. <laughs> that's all right. And you really gave made it convenient for him. You made it sixty miles away from where he was going to be. I mean, come on, he <laughs> declined the challenge. What a dick I was. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Eric, one of the one of the things that uh, I've forgotten about was one of the reasons you chose the Mall of America for the Nitro debut when uh, Luger came out was uh, you couldn't sell tickets. So it was not a matter of, you know, WCW was not selling tickets. One of the reasons you went to Disney was because you weren't selling tickets on the road. You're losing money. You had a built-in audience, and you didn't want to debut the show in an arena that was, you know, 10% full because we had the same problem. We, 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 we couldn't sell tickets anywhere during that time. Business was terrible during that time, but that was one of the reasons you chose mall of America, right? Was because it was a venue that you knew that you could make look a much bigger than what it was. Yeah. I had been to the, you know, mall of America back then was kind of a new thing <clears throat> because I had family, you know, that still lived in Minnesota. I would saw it right away. And, you know, I remember that atrium, um, that part of the mall where we actually shot the show. And I thought, man, you know, we put a wrestling on match on here and have a lot of the big names that we have, you know, we're not going to put 6,000 people around the ring, but it doesn't matter. Cause it'll look really cool. And the camera angles and the way we could shoot it would kind of make up for the fact that, you know, we couldn't give, not only could we not sell tickets, we had a hard time giving tickets away. 
we were trying to paper houses and nobody would show up. So yeah, the mall of America and Disney were of a function of necessity, not creative, you know, instincts. Yeah. I don't think people realize how bad business was at that time. I mean, it was just terrible for us. It was terrible for you guys. Uh, did you ever, during that time, you, you had so much success, you know, the first thing you, you had with Luger debuting that first show, the first guy to jump. Then of course you had Scott and Kevin, which was, you know, one of the greatest storylines of all time. Uh, did you ever, you said you never really went after talent. Did you mm-hmm. ever just think, you know, I wish I could get that guy and want to reach out. Or, or did you just wait for him to come to you? No, because the, no, I waited. And um, look, Shawn Michaels was a name that got, you know, tossed around a lot, especially after, you know, Kevin and Scott came in. But back then, and Shawn will be the first person to admit it, he had a hell of a reputation, not a good one. And it was like, man, yeah, he's, he'd be great to have on the roster, but I, I do not need that headache. I just don't want it wasn't worth it to me. And at the time to be fair about it, we didn't need them. We were kind of on a roll. So why would you introduce something that you knew had a 90% chance of creating a negative environment, you know, in your locker room when a, you don't need it because you're doing pretty well with what you got. And, um, B, I, I, I didn't think Sean would, would want to come over. You know, I know, I knew that he had conversations with, with Scott and with Kevin and the impression I got from them was he's not really interested. He was happy where he was. The only other person really would have been undertaker, but I had already heard from so many people that were close to undertaker. Cause I never knew him. You know, I never worked with him previously back in that, at that point. And I had heard from everybody that knew him well, that he was so close and loyal to Vince that that was never going to happen. And besides, there were so many people coming to us on a regular basis. I, I didn't really have to go after anybody. Yeah, you know, we we in the WWE, we always boast about what a roster we had during the Attitude Era. But during that eighty-three weeks that you were kicking our butts every week, you had you had probably perhaps an equal talent roster, perhaps even even greater and more significant than than ever before because. You guys were the ones that started the 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 uh, the reversal of of the downtrend. You guys started that snowball rolling where it built into where 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 we caught the ride too. But it it all started with the talent roster that you had during that era there, and how you assembled that. And then here, listen to you. Yeah, I waited till these guys came came to me. I mean, that's probably the philosophy that we all should have had, and that that's what built a greater greater talent roster of a bunch of guys that want to be with you that called you to be there that you didn't have to call and recruit. Yeah. I mean, Randy Savage, I think it was a perfect example. Now Randy didn't call me, but Randy talked to Hulk and then Hulk talked to me. And then, then I talked to Randy, you know what I mean? So it would filter when somebody was interested in and have at least having a discussion. Um, they generally wouldn't call me directly unless it was somebody that I previously knew. Um, they would usually make sure that somebody close to me got the message and that would start the ball rolling. But, you know, getting, getting people to, you know, join the roster at WCW at that time was not that difficult. A, cause I, I had Ted Turner's money. Yeah. Well, Eric, Eric, what you just said also, you know, it, 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 to me is so pertinent, you know, 
you you were I mean basically a guy that hadn't been in the business that long. You were basically a guy that came from advertising background, and you know what the hell did this guy know about the business? But you brought that fresh look and that fresh taste and a fresh mind into the business that that kind of you didn't you didn't you didn't you know rebuild a watch. You just kind of put the places the, the talent in the places they needed to be. And man, you struck gold with that roster that you had. Yeah, and part of it was just when I, I when I say luck, I don't mean like you know winning a lottery ticket, but timing. You know, timing. I think timing plays such an important part in the success of anything, any business, any form of entertainment or art, if you will. Timing is everything. You know, and I think the audience was just ready for something different. They didn't care what it was. They just wanted something different. And I happened to stumble into the position I was in. And because I didn't know anything, I was willing to try things that were different. And it just worked, you know, because the audience was ready for it. Yeah, a lot of people did you have, have a go-to history. guy that you were bouncing things off. Was Terry your go-to guy, or did you have a confidant that you were you'd, you'd share that your your brain brain thought with? No, I, I mean Terry to to a certain degree. When it, when it was something that involved Hulk, obviously I talked to Hulk. But in a general sense, you know, building the Nitro format and deciding to go live and doing all the crazy stuff that I did and giving away finishes. Now I just. You know, sometimes Diamond Dallas Page, because he lived down the street for me, and on weekends we'd end up getting together and having a couple of beers and talking about wrestling. So we'd shoot the shit back and forth. But beyond that, no, I didn't really have – I had a lot of people that I talked to, but nobody that I would consider a confidant. One of the things, uh, Eric, is that people have revisionist history a lot when they talk about, you know, everybody becomes a gunslinger. And everybody has – it's amazing how stories just get repeated wrong. You took over a company that had about 24 million in revenue and was losing 10 million a year. And within about five years, around 98 or 99, right in that era, 97, 98, you made over 350 million and you had 40 million plus in profits. I mean, that is an astronomical turnaround. You really had nobody in Time Warner or anywhere in CNN that said, we want to give this guy who came out of a ad background who had this, that was a remarkable corporate turnaround. Something else to do, puts you over the new MGM library, puts you over anything else they were acquiring content. Nobody wanted to put you in a different role when you moved out of the wrestling role? No, you got to remember the culture at Turner. While, you know, 97, I think was 98, 97, 98 was probably our best year financially. The ratings were through the roof. There was a lot of positive press about WCW. The Wall Street Journal was talking. I mean, it was a big deal, right, in Turner. But secretly, privately, a lot of the executives, I mean, a couple levels above me, were pissed. They didn't want wrestling. They didn't. Re- they were hoping it wouldn't succeed. So, yeah, they acknowledged what I did to a, to a degree, but they couldn't wait to see me fail <laughs> so they could get back to their agenda and get rid of, get rid of wrestling. You know, Ted Turner changed so much. The, the regional sports networks, the RSNs are because of Ted Turner. Now, you know, he had the Atlanta Braves who had all those games on his WTBS or TNT, whatever games were on. So you didn't have to make money just off the baseball. Cause you also had content. 
You know, he bought content. You know, and in 95, he was on top of the world. CNN was number one by far that he created. He, uh, the, the Braves won the championship. And you had WCW turning a profit uh, for the first time. I know he sold at the top, but did he regret that? I mean, here's a guy who built everything from scratch. You just seem like this bootstrap type guy. Did he regret the fact that he kind of went from being on top of the world to kind of being pushed out by a bunch of corporate guys that didn't want to him to be running anything anymore? You know, I haven't had the chance to talk to Ted, you know, since all that went down. And, and, and Ted, you know, he doesn't live far from me uh, now. He's only about an hour and a half north of me. And I, I was up, he's up in Bozeman, Montana. And I was up there this past summer. And he has a Ted Turner's restaurant up there, right? <clears throat> and I knew, you know, in the years past, I'd go in there and people say, oh, you just missed Ted. He and his family were in and years ago now. So I went in this past summer and I asked the manager, hey, Ted happened to stop by and um it became apparent in that conversation and Ted doesn't get out much anymore. He's got dementia and they don't let him out in public anymore. So I, I'll never get a chance to ask him, but if you read any of the things that interviews and such that Ted did after the whole AOL time Warner thing collapsed, he did express <clears throat> a lot of remorse. You know, he didn't realize he was getting the rug pulled out from underneath him as it was being pulled out from underneath him. He didn't realize he was getting moved to a corner office and had absolutely no control over his own company any longer. He just wasn't aware. It all happened fast. <clears throat> I think Ted trusted Gerald Levin um, probably more than he should have, clearly. And Ted Turner woke up one day and realized he had been neutralized. And when it was all said and done, yeah, he, he expressed remorse. In the interviews that I've seen and read, yeah, and then, then uh, about 98, when Ted had been kind of taken out of everything, that's when you also had, for the first time, you had Mike Tyson coming along. You had the evil Mr. McMahon. You had the first time that the WWE had caught up to, to WCW in the ratings. But at the same time, you had the corporate, corporate Time Warner and CNN pushing you from the top down. Did you feel like you're just backed into a box here? Like, of all times, for those guys to put standards and practice in place – and to bring corporate people down to me, this is the absolute wrong time. Did you just feel like it was a confluence of events that thought, you got to be kidding me? Yeah. Well, and again, from my going back to 98, <clears throat> it was the summer of 98, really, <clears throat> that the first evidence, I think, that things were going to start getting really bad occurred to me. Because again, in, you know, 96, you know, I, I mean, Ted Turner would call me himself, you know, every Tuesday afternoon when the ratings came out, you know, he couldn't wait to call me, you know, Brad Siegel would be on the phone. Ted would be on the phone. Sometimes Scott Sassa. And he was so, he was more excited than I was honestly. And, and it was like that for a long time. And, and then in the summer of 98, I remember, now again, I didn't know what was going on with the murder. I didn't know what was happening with Ted. I didn't know what the political goings on were, I was just doing my shit, you know, and I got called into this office or into a meeting with like 14 people. I'd never really seen. Well, I, a couple of them I knew who they were, but there's a lot of people. I didn't even know who they were in this meeting. And I sat around and I sat there at the table and they all went around and introduced themselves and told me what their roles were. And all of them were like two levels above me and or more. 
And then they proceeded to go around the room and tell me everything that they wanted changed about the way WCW was being presented and produced. And I'm like, what the hell? I mean, we were still great at that point. This was summer, early summer, mid-summer, 98. This is before things started getting bad. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. You know, and they, they, I, I ended up listening to it until we got to the end. And by the time we got to the end of this meeting, I there's 14 or 15 people I had to listen to before I got to speak. So down towards the end, there was this guy by the name of Joe Yuva. Now, if you Google Joe Yuva, UVA, you'll come to find he ended up being a really, really powerful guy in the entertainment industry, right? Right, really powerful. But he wasn't so much at the time. He was the head of Turner Ad Sales. And I didn't really know the cat. First time I'd ever really talked to him. So he's talking about advertising and all this kind of stuff about how he sees advertising and what, how WCW will fit into the Turner ad sales portfolio and all this corporate speak. So we got down and I said, Joe, can you tell me what day of the week Monday night shows on Good time? It was like panic, right? Cut him flat footed. It was a trick question because I gave him the night. I said, do you know what night of the week Monday Nitro was on? And he still couldn't answer it immediately. Now he, he stammered and stuttered his way around and got it out. But it just it made me realize that I'm sitting in a room full of people that, you know, first of all, nothing about the wrestling industry, not just the business inside of the ring, but the business of the business. They knew nothing at all about it. They knew even less about the wrestling audience. They knew even less and less about the history of where WCW was and where WC was at that current moment and how we got there. They didn't care. They didn't want to know. It didn't matter to them. They just had this idea of how WCW was going to fit into their now AOL Time Warner cookie cutter mold. And it was sad. And I knew right then. I got home from that meeting. I told my wife, it's the first time in my life I've ever decided I was going to quit something. And I told her, I said, I think I'm going to, I had time left on my deal. I said, I'm, I'm going to resign. I'm just going to quit. This is not going to work. I knew it. I knew it wasn't going to work. And I thought about it overnight and I cooled off and I was still loyal to Ted because I thought, well, all I need to do is push. I'll just fight because eventually I'm going to be sitting in front of Ted and whoever else I'm fighting with. And I'm pretty sure I know how that's going to turn out because Ted liked wrestling and, and he understood what we were achieving and he was paying attention to WCW and he did know what we went through and he did have an understanding of the wrestling audience much more than anybody else in that room I was in. And I, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to fuck with the people that get in my way till we get in front of Ted and then I'll win. <laughs> That didn't work. <laughs> Eric, was it during that time that you were uh, you're, you were thinking about purchasing uh, uh, WCW? How, how did that? How did those thoughts come about? And uh, and uh, did, 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 uh, obviously you wouldn't you wouldn't have known that the the product was going to be taken off the air. Uh, but uh, you know when uh, the risk when you go and buy, like I've had a little bit of experience buying and selling territories. Uh, and so I know when, when you buy something, you don't always get what, what, what you're buying there. So in other words, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard some horrible stories about that, but in my case, you know, the, the stories I've, I've just you know shared with you were from like midsummer 98. <clears throat> I fought, I thought I would win. I thought I'd get my meeting with Ted. I thought I'd, 
prevail. And I didn't. And in September of 99, <clears throat> they actually sent me home with two years left of my contract, a year and a half, whatever it was. They just sent me home. And a couple of months later, they brought me back. And when they first brought me back, I went to Brad Siegel and said, because he was president of TNT at the time, he was overseeing WCW. And I said, I told him, I said, Brad, this is never going to work. You know that. And I know that. So before this thing completely crashes and burns, why don't you let me try and find a buyer? And Brad Siegel laughed at me, not, not derisively, but he was like, you know, because they're never going to sell this. It's not, that's never going to happen. I said, all right, all right, let me know. Fast forward a couple months, I get a phone call from Brad. <clears throat> Say, Eric, um, you remember back in January or February or whatever it was when you said you might be able to find a buyer? <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, think that's still possible? And of course I lied. I said, sure. I had no idea what I was going to do or who I was going to do it with. But if I figured if I could get the door cracked open enough, I'll find somebody. And immediately went to work and, and found Fusion Media. And they stepped up to the plate and the rest is history. And then at the last second, they pulled the TV programming from you. And that's when you decided not to, to make the purchase, right? Because they said no yeah. longer, they said no longer will WCW have the, the place at WTBS, right? Yeah. The, I think the purchase price was 63 million or 67 million. But along with that came either a two or a four year television licensing agreement. So we knew we had a television home for at least two or four years, whatever it was. I can't remember anymore. <clears throat> and at the very last minute, Jimmy Kellner came in um, as the new president of Turner and looked at the deal that was sitting on the table and pulled the TV component out of the deal, in which case it was worth nothing. That was before anybody knew about streaming and the potential and the Internet and all that. So the, the when library. Did, when did really you find out that they were pulling the program? Uh, about a month before the deal was supposed to close. I mean, we did. You know, Brian Badal and I, um, we did a dog and pony Wall Street conference call, an investor's call. Um, it was publicized. You know, I mean, the deal was done. We'd gone through six or eight months of due diligence, whatever it was. I think Fusion Media spent close to a million dollars in legal fees in the due diligence process. I mean, we thought we had a deal. I actually took my kids to Hawaii. It was spring break for them. <clears throat> so I... I told my wife, I said, let's just take the kids to Hawaii while we have this time, because when I get back, that deal is going to close. And when that deal closes, it might be a couple of years before I can take a vacation again. And so we agreed and we took our kids and a couple of their friends to Hawaii. And I was sitting on a beach one day and I got a phone call from Brian Badal and he says, it's done. I said, great. I got a cocktail in my hand. I'm on a beach. Couldn't it be a better time to get that news? He said, no, 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 no. It's done, done. He said, I got it. It's done. No, you dumb shit. He didn't say dumb shit. No. Did they pulled the plug on the deal. It's over. It's not going to happen. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. I was just in shock. When, when uh, you, you took a company from losing a ton of money to make it one of the hottest products in cable television, because that was a time that will never be repeated. And, you know, when you have two live shows that are going at each other, doing the ratings that they were doing. It was, it, and then I saw one time we had a 5.7 versus a 5.5. It was insane ratings we were doing. When they sent you home, what did they tell you? 
Harvey Schiller was my boss at the time. He was my direct report. Harvey was the president president of Turner Sports. And I liked Harvey. You know, he was he was quirky in his own way. You know, ex-military colonel in the Air Force, I think. Uh, very uh, imposing kind of a guy when it came down to business. But the thing I loved about working for Harvey is as long as I met my numbers, he left me alone. He did not micromanage me at all. And for that reason, I had a lot of respect for him. We had a good, you know, we didn't socialize, you know, we didn't go out for, to, for dinner after work or anything like that, but we had a good relationship, mutual respect, I guess. So when he called me into his, first of all, I got a phone call. I'm, you know, on my way to the office and I get a phone call. Uh, oh, Harvey Schiller wants to see you in his office. <clears throat> it's like nine 30 or 10 in the morning. I had never gotten called. I mean, there was times when I was in Harvey's office, but never you know, called to a meeting. It's always stuff that was previously scheduled and I knew what the agenda was. In this case, it was, you know, random phone call. Come on in. Harvey wants to sit with you. I went, wow, that's odd. That's really odd. And we had a pay-per-view that Sunday. So it was even more unusual because I was pretty busy. So I got up to Harvey's office. As soon as I sat down, I could tell by looking at Harvey, his demeanor had changed so much from the Harvey Schiller that I would normally see. He didn't want to have to tell me it wasn't his idea. He told me it wasn't his idea. He told me right away, right off the bat. He said, he said, Eric, I'm not doing this because this is my choice. I'm doing this because this is the choice coming from the North Tower. Well, okay. What is that choice? He basically said, go home. I said, Harvey, I can't go home. I got a pay-per-view. No, you don't. <laughs> and uh-huh. I, I didn't get it right away. I mean, I was like, well, no, I do, Harvey. No, Eric, you're not listening to me. You need to go home. Get some rest. Just go home. We'll have another conversation a little while down the road. But for now, just go home. And then it finally dawned on me. You know, I was being let go. Now, again, I had a year and a half, two years left on my contract. So I wasn't worried about that. The minute he said, go home. He triggered the pay or play provision of my contract. It's not like he could change his mind and call me back to work on Monday. Once they put, once they exercise that provision, that's it. That bullet left the barrel and I'm collecting, you know, collecting a hefty sum of money for the next year and a half or two years. So I wasn't worried about money. I was just confused by it all for about 45 minutes. Not even that. By the time I got home, I got home by about 11 o'clock that morning. By that time, I processed it, got home, told my wife what happened. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to jump in. I had my own plane at the time. I said, I'm going to jump in my plane and fly to Wyoming because the fishing is really good in September. That's (laughs) what I did. I saw uh, Terry McGurk the other day. I don't know if you know, remember Terry. I know Terry. Terry is the chairman now of the uh, Atlanta Braves. We're just down the playoffs. And uh, he, he told me basically exactly what you're saying. He said, Eric had us rolling and he said, the corporate merger just pulled the absolute rug out from under it. You know, it was just, uh, you know, it's something is, is cool to hear the validation of from somebody coming from inside of, of the organization. Do you ever have any contact now with any of those guys uh, from your past? No, John, I'm horrible. <clears throat> I'm a horrible phone friend. I don't like talking on the phone all that much. <clears throat> you know, my, my brother and sister are, in Minnesota and I love them dearly. 
And I think if you added up the total time over the course of a year that I speak to both of them, it would be less than four minutes. So I'm just not a phone guy. And uh, I don't, you know, occasionally I come across people and I'm always happy to see them and we reminisce and it's just like, you know, yesterday, but I, I don't, I don't make an attempt to stay in touch with too many people. I talk to you guys more than I talk to most people that I work for at WCW. Do you have, uh, how are your memories of that time? Because you, you, it was, there will never, never be a time that is like that Monday Night War again. I mean, I don't care what happens. Your companies are just not going to go live, live against each other with a zero-sum game like it's going to happen. You know, It's not going to happen to that level because of the way TV was then with the ratings, uh, the, the incredible ratings that there were. Do you look back with really good memories or do you have some like, ah, I wish I'd have changed that or any regrets? You know, John, if you would have asked me that question three years ago, I would have given you an entirely different answer, <clears throat> but to give credit to Conrad, when he, when Conrad first reached out to me about doing a podcast, you know, I was interested because I could see the success that Conrad and Bruce were having. And at the time money was, you know, critical for me. You know, I was, I was kind of on a rebound or trying to, so I was really interested in and when we first started talking, I said, well, Conrad, what do you see for a format? What do you see the show being? He said, no, I want to go back and, you know, really talk about the Monday Night Wars. And, you know, I said, Conrad, man, that, that's been done to death. There's been books. There's been DVDs. There's about a million and a half shoot interviews floating around. Nobody wants to hear about that shit anymore. And Conrad said, no, Eric, I think you're wrong. They, they, they do want to hear about it. It's just got to be done the right way. So I was not reluctant, but I, I, I wasn't convinced. I went along unconvinced that it was the right thing to do because I was just convinced people are sick and tired of hearing about it. And we, when we first started doing it, you know, if you go back and listen to some of our first podcasts, it was not pretty. I didn't, I didn't really have any chemistry with Conrad at the time. I didn't know him. We were just starting to work together. And on my part, I was really defensive because I'd spent 20 or some odd years listening to all, you know, Eric Bischoff ruined WCW. He's a finger poke of fucking doom and Ted Turner's money and, you know, all the hate, right? <clears throat> I'd been on the receiving end of that for 20 years. <laughs> so the minute somebody opens up in an interview and starts busting my balls back then, my reaction was a little stiff <laughs> and not fun. Because I was defensive. I'd go into a podcast like this, you know, I was in the corner, tucking my chin, trying not to get knocked out. And over a period of time, that all started to change because I started having fun, even with the negative things, you know, even with the mistakes I made or the bad choices I made or whatever. I started having fun talking about those things and it completely changed the way I looked at my career. You know, I mean, I knew, you know, there were some great spots. There were some great moments. There were some big things happen. Of course, I knew that. But in my mind, I was kind of overwhelmed with all the negative bullshit that constantly came my way. But once I turned that around and started having fun with it, it completely changed the way I looked at my career as a whole. And now I look back at it as nothing but I'm just great. I'm just grateful as hell. For all of it, not just the good stuff, for every moment, even the really shitty stuff, I'm grateful for it, and I wouldn't change anything. 
because the great stuff was great. Speaks for itself. But even the shitty stuff, I learned so much from once I could look at it and not be angry or defensive about it, but just have fun with it and think about it and talk about it. It became apparent to me that, you know, I've, I know more, a lot more now than I did back then by virtue of some of the experiences I had because of my bad choices or my mistakes or my miscalculations. All of it was a great education and a great experience that I wouldn't trade for the world. And a lot of that, for a lot of wrestling fans, that was the greatest time of their life was the Attitude Era. And, and all that was created by you. And I say created by you. If it wasn't for you, you wouldn't have the response from WWE. So you wouldn't have had Degeneration X. You still would have had Sean and Hunter, but they probably would have been in a different version because they wouldn't have been answering the NWO. You wouldn't have had Evil Mr. McMahon. You wouldn't have had Stone Cold in that version that was answering what you guys were doing in WCW. So the Attitude Era is pretty much you're responsible for setting the sliding the match that set that bonfire. But for a lot of wrestling fans, that was the greatest time of their life. And that's what people remember so much. And that's got to be really cool when you sit back and think you know, that, that I had a great place in history. You know, it, it is. And it's one of the, one of the things I'm grateful for, but you know, it the hall of fame, um, right. As I was getting ready to go out and on TV, Vince came over and he pulled me aside and we had a, again, just like he was in the very first phone call, he was elegant and gracious is the only two words that come to my mind. And I'm not going to reveal what he said because I, I felt like it was private and that's the way it's going to stay. But it really made me, it was like the cherry on top. It was like, you know, to have that brief exchange with Vince after all of that, it just, made it so much easier for me to look back at that period of time, the Monday night war and the competition and all the crazy shit I did and all the crazy shit you guys did go, man, that was just, that was the best. This was, you know, Eric, you're exactly right. We look at back on the three of us. We're really fortunate to, to come through the, uh, the time that we came through. I, I've been through so many ups and downs in the business. When I first started in the, in the late 60s, the business was so down at that time because there, there was just a bunch of old timers. Then a bunch of young guys started coming in, the Fonks, uh, the Briscoes, the uh, Races, and guys like that, the Rhodes and the Murdochs. And the business started changing a little bit. I look back on that, that downtime when I started. Man, man, what a time that was and what an education. But I, I look. And as it grow, and I, I take tight, great pride uh, to be friends like uh, you and John and, and just look and see what the business was built in during that time. And I was fortunate enough to be a, a, a major role player, just like you two guys were. But it, it's a lot of pride that goes in it. And it, it, it's, just, it's, it's, it's so satisfying. And you look at today's business, you got to look at it a little bit different. I look at it, I look at these athletes, and they're, they're tremendous athletes, and uh, they're, they're, they're doing everything. They're doing things that, that I thought was impossible to do in the ring, and these kids, they're doing it. And, and the way the, the ladies' uh, divisions have come up, and, and both organizations, these girls that they have nowadays, I mean, they're as good as, as any of the guys ever were back in my time. But how, how do you kind of look at the business today and, and take pride in what you did and what you built 
and how it reflects on today's business. I never think about that anymore, Joe. <clears throat> I don't, I, I just don't, you know, I, I pay attention to, to be very honest. I'm more interested in the business of the wrestling business than I am in, uh, than I am in what's going on inside of the ring on any given night. I, I don't watch wrestling for the entertainment value anymore. I watch wrestling occasionally. Um, what are you looking for when you watch it, Eric? Um, characters. I'm begging them to show me story. I'm begging. I'm hoping that when I tune in, that I'm going to see something that tells me somebody's paying more attention to story than they are to, you know, match quality. Not that match quality is not important, but I think the the emphasis that is on the physical display of wrestling has by default de-emphasized the quality of the story. And I think the qual the lack of story quality and consistency, the lack of characters, not that they don't have characters, they do, but going back to what John and I and, and Gerald, we were all three talking about is you don't feel connected to the characters the same way anymore because those promos aren't there. They're just kind of like, they're out of necessity, but they're not creating any emotion. And that's, I think, because such a large part of the emphasis is on the presentation of the in-ring product. And the sheer volume of content that's being produced today, in particular by WWE, makes it an even bigger challenge. It's, it's, a, it's incredible that they can get anything on TV to begin with. But what has suffered, in my opinion, is the attention to de detail and commitment to great storytelling. Now storytelling is taking a backseat to a great in-ring performance that may or may not have a decent backstory to it. Well, that's one of the reasons we have stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. Unfortunately, this is probably one of our last shows because you and billionaire Connie <laughs> are putting us out of business, but Eric, we love you. We can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the show. We're so happy for your success. We're sorry that you're putting us out of business with Billionaire Connie, and we're going to miss doing our show. But we're glad that you're one of our last guests because you are one of our good friends. And, and Jerry's now 75. I'm hoping that he gets old enough that I'm able to take him also. And when we do, me and you going to beat the damn shit out of the man from Oklahoma. <laughs> He may have missed his chance, Eric, when I had my knee replacement done about four months ago. He said, I'm kind of, at that time, they were coming to Florida, you know, doing the Thunderdome over here at the University of South Florida. He said, I got to hurry up and get – they got pissed at the Kevin now because Kevin wasn't booking down there for a pay-per-view, so he <laughs> right. come down and kicked my ass while my leg was self-mending from a knee replacement. But, Eric, I, I, I want to I thank you too, man. This has been absolutely a ball. We've had fun. This entire week, you know, uh, uh, jostling back and forth on social media. I mean, it's great when you have friends and you can you can do that stuff and you can talk like we talk and 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 know each other. That hey man, this is fun, you know. And and so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on here. This is one of one of one one of the privileges that we have, as you know, when you can have great great uh, guests on these on these shows and. We sure appreciate it, and you, 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 you're you're welcome to come on whatever we have left of a show uh, coming up. <laughs> uh, you, That's right. 
You know, so a, a little bird told me that your futures are going to be pretty bright at podcasting. So I may be coming to you looking for work down the road. <laughs> but seriously, you know, when we're talking about, you know, when I look back and my career and what do I, how do I feel about it? I say this a lot, you know, I, you, Gerald, John, Bruce Pritchard, you know, there's a handful of other people that I, I won't mention that because I don't want them to get in any heat because they still work at WWE. But, you know, I have a lot of friends that, that has come out of that, all of this that I, that I value and you two, nobody higher than you two. I love you guys. And I'd do anything, anytime, you know, with either one of you or both of you at the same time, because I do really enjoy your, your friendship, your personalities. You guys are a blast. You're just a blast to hang out with. So thank you very much.